Welcome to the Rare Air Podcast. It caught me by surprise when I realised that it's equally important for Father Chris Bedding to be a priest as it is for him to be a pirate. And yes, those two worlds may seem unmanageably juxtaposed, especially combined with his social activism and increasing media presence. But wait till you meet the guy, then you'll understand. Father Chris Bedding, thanks for being with me. Hi, Mary. It's really great to be with you. Which came first, the calling to the priesthood or to the act of piracy? Uh, I was a priest before I was a pirate, um, but I think... All along, I've been a bit of a pirate priest, and so the the genesis of Pirate Church, which came out of uh, really with an interaction with with uh, comedian Wurzel, who's now my comedy partner, kind of brought to life what had always been lurking there, and that was a I suppose a sense that while uh, I really want to be an effective priest, uh, I'm also not particularly interested in playing into the stereotypes that go with that. I don't want to be the kind of priest from central casting who's just always on his best behaviour and having cups of tea with old ladies. Uh, that said, I do like cups of tea with old ladies. Um, I, I, I kind of was interested in being uh, engaged with society and engaged with the, with the contemporary world rather than separated from it. So, I mean, acting is necessarily a kind of a significant other mm. to being a priest, but um, I know that you, you had the calling to the vocation of being a priest as a kid, didn't you? Yeah. Look, I first kind of identified a vocation when I was about 15, but I think it was sort of lurking there before that. Uh, and I think I the first inklings of it came in seeing other ministers and priests going about their business and kind of having a sense that, oh, maybe that's what I'll be doing. Maybe that's what my life will involve. Why? Um, I think it's look. I think it's fair to say that there can that can be very dysfunctional. There can actually be a kind of attraction to the role of the priesthood that is about status, about power, about um, position, uh, about glamour, and and you'd be amazed. Like you wouldn't necessarily think of a priest as being a, a glamorous role, but for some people, you know, the idea that you could just stand up in front of a group of people in fancy dress and there's music and there's there, there's a kind of atmosphere around it, that can be very intoxicating. And, and I think I and anyone involved in ministry always has to be on guard about that. And so from a young age, I, I won't lie, there was a certain amount of uh, attraction to the, the potential glamour of, of the role. And then when I was about 15, I guess, I uh, was on a leadership program and they sent us into the bush for a couple of hours and and with nothing, actually, they, they gave us, we had a Bible and I think a pen and paper. Uh, and when you're 15, two hours is an eternity and uh, I was sort of sitting alone and, and there was no like voice from heaven or anything but it was at that moment that I kind of admitted to myself that there was a sense of of calling there and so I sort of started to talk about it with various people with my own parish priest with the chaplain on the course um, and and starting to get a sense of what that was like but I don't think as a 15 year old or even when I was ordained at 23, I don't think at any point I ever really understood what was involved. Uh, I, I think if you think too much about about it, you, you, you wouldn't do it. 
So for me, it was very much a response to uh, like the kind of irresistible impetus inside. And 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 if I'm honest, there's there's always been kind of uh, competing or uh, competing is a bit strong, but complementary compulsions. And and so the sense of vocation to be a priest ha- has sort of always been there, but there's also always been uh, uh, the artistic impulse as well. But it um, seems to me that the artistic impulse is somehow gratified by the priest, Ella, or that's what I heard yeah, you say. Yeah. It, 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 I'm so careful now, I, I, and in fact more careful than ever, that I don't use um, the, the pulpit or the liturgy as a way to meet my need to be a performer. Um, so it's actually funny, people will say to me, uh, they'll see me do comedy or, or acting or improv and they'll say, oh, I must come to your church sometime. I bet it's very entertaining. And I have to say, well, no, uh, it's pretty straight. I, I, I'm i very careful not to turn a sermon into a stand-up routine. Uh, I'm careful not to make the uh, sort of liturgical experience about uh, my own need to perform. Um, so you play with a pretty straight bat when you're in the pulpit. Very then. much so, yeah, I'm really I can really imagine careful. you could have a lot of fun with it. I, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you, you do meet clergy who are kind of frustrated stand-up comedians who, who use the, the the pulpit to kind of get out their their gags. Um, I mean, there, there is a kind of cliche about starting a sermon with a joke, and I used to think it, it was a joke, but actually there are people who do that. They kind of tell their joke for the week. Um, and and, and it, look, it can become um, also a bit of cult of personality, and that, that does happen a lot. And so I, I, I don't know how successful I am, but I try to be really aware of that. So what, uh, what do you say to yourself to kind of manage that manage that tendency perhaps I think I remind myself well the, the classic analogy is we tend to people go to a church service and they think that like the the priest and the musicians and the people at the front are like the cast and uh, the people in the pews are like the audience and then there's kind of backstage crew who, who you know do the flowers or run the sound system or whatever and so I remind myself that in the church context the 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 audience is God and the cast is the congregation. And my role as the priest in leading liturgy is like the backstage crew. My role is to enable the, uh, the, the if you like, the theatre to happen, um, which is being offered as a gift to God. Um, I'm not performing for the crowd. And it's it's a bit like flicking a switch, I think. I, I, I sort of say, right, I'm now going into the zone where I'm, I'm essentially a servant in this context. I'm not here to draw attention to myself, but to God. Um, but I won't lie. There are occasions when the razzle dazzle takes over, and and you just you just you know you perform for the crowd, especially if there's a big crowd. Um, and you know sometimes if I'm speaking at a conference or something, uh, it can be very very tempting to to make it a, a performance that's about me. Uh, and uh, strange, this is going to shock you, Mary, but I'm not I'm not perfect. Um, but I, I tr- I'm I know, right? But it, 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 I find myself constantly on that edge of, of trying to make sure that I'm not trying to fulfil my own needs uh, in the church context. And that's both in the public 
church service stuff and also in the the one-on-one pastoral counseling stuff because that can very quickly become about one's own yeah. own agenda I, I want to ask you more about the role in in mm. all seriousness about the role but firstly just to try and glean a better understanding of why um, of how you know acting developed alongside this um, your vocation to the priesthood mm. the, the, I mean is that something that's all been there since school years as well look I did a bit of amdram when I was uh, when I was a teenager in school productions and that sort sort of thing. Um, I was really a singer. That That's my first yeah. um, art form. Uh, and I sang in church choirs and school choirs and musical theatre and all of that. And I think there was uh, a, a sense for me that I would either pursue a career as a, a musician and particularly as a singer or as a priest. And, and in sort of late high school, a lot of people just assumed that I would pursue a music career because that was the what they knew about me. And in a sense, I had to convince myself to put to one side a career in the arts for uh, the, to be a priest. And for probably the first few years, I do a bit of, you know, amateur work and odds and sods and um, you find avenues, you know, to, to scratch the itch. But generally speaking, I was putting the arts to one side to, to pursue um, or to focus on, on being a priest. Um, I think it's when I came to Perth. I've been in Perth eight years. It, it was probably um, uh, after I'd made the move from, from regional New South Wales um, to a bigger city that it became feasible to pursue uh, more artistic opportunities. And also I discovered that people kind of want to be involved with me. And so, you know, I was being invited to do things, the casting was happening. Um, I was meeting people that I wanted to work with. And so it kind of emerged organically, but I still feel in myself, I think, a tension uh, between do I, uh, how much time or how much energy do I expend on the arts versus what is um, not just my job, but my vocation. And it's funny, sometimes I, I, I mention this to parishioners. I say, oh, I feel a bit guilty, you know, and I'm doing, you know, more or a lot more time with, with artistic things at the moment than, than perhaps I should. And one of my parishioners said to me, look, honestly, if, if we were getting 100% of your creative energy, we wouldn't know how to cope with that. So <laughs> it's quite good. small parish, Father. <laughs> well, that's it, yeah. It's like, it's kind of good that you have a creative outlet. Go and do that and then just give us, give us about 50% of your creative uh, energy and that'll be quite enough. I thought, oh, that's nice feedback. Well, t- tell me a bit more about the job itself and uh, you know what it requires from you on a daily basis, and and I'm particularly interested in the financial side of it because mm. you you've told me that you have to bring in around about $120,000 a year to make the yeah. parish viable. That's a massive responsibility. It is, and I think it's the kind of unseen part of the role of the priest. I certainly do. I meet with people who are struggling and you have a pastoral conversation and visit people who are uh, unwell or in crisis. And uh, there's a lot of kind of groups and programs. There are obviously the, the church services. Um, there's a lot of meetings. There's a, there's a lot of the kind of visible stuff that goes with being a priest. But undergirding all of that is a kind of small business or small NGO kind of management. And if you talk to any clergy person in any tradition, they'll say to you that that is the most 
stressful part of the role. Um, it's the role, the part of the role that we're not trained for, and it's the usually the source of conflict. There's rarely conflict about someone who's having a rough time and they want to speak to you. There's nothing to argue with about that. Of course, that we respond to that with compassion, but conflict about where the driveway should go or what the sign should say on it or how much electricity is being used that that is very often the nexus of, of conflict in in a parish environment and so and, and there's a real tension because we pay our own way people think that particularly for anglican and catholic churches there's a pot of money somewhere like there's a, a scrooge mcduck style money pit and uh, and we just go and help ourselves it's not how it works we have to essentially raise locally what we spend locally and so that means in a relatively small or a relatively normal parish like mine, uh, yeah, it's about 120000 bucks a year, uh, which is what it costs to imprison one person in a WA jail, incidentally. Um, so we have to uh, have a system of giving uh, where people are signed up for direct debits and, and you pass the plate, although the plate's increasingly becoming less of an income stream uh, than it was. It's much more kind of people committed to giving electronically on a regular basis. Uh, and then you've got to manage how you spend the money. Uh, there are some fixed costs, like I get paid, uh, and that's largely fixed. But then, like, if you need to replace a fire extinguisher or if, uh, you know, there's a, there's a major piece of work like carpet, oh, my gosh, the rigmarole required. I mean, people know what it's like in their own home when you have to do that kind of work. But when there are multiple contributors uh, to the decision-making and everybody wants to do the best work for the cheapest price, um, that sort of thing becomes uh, quite exhausting sometimes. Including the decorated decisions as well, oh. I imagine. Very much so. And I find myself often ha often having to be the arbiter or to break the nexus of, um, you know, what colour will this be painted or where will those shelves go uh, or what artwork is going to be hung on the wall. And it it's okay. It's, it's like being a parent. You have to make these decisions. But what's the care factor on stuff like that when oh. you've actually got real pastoral care work to do? Yeah. I, I mean, I remember a, a, a long, turgid conversation about the, uh, the hot water urn, the one that sits on the wall, like a... Mm. Mm. like a zip type heater or ream and um and some people were arguing that it should be turned off overnight and then someone was doing calculations about whether turning it off overnight and turning it back on again was more efficient and whether there should be a timer on it and whether da, 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 we should get rid of it altogether. And this conversation went on so long and I ended up saying to the meeting, look, I honestly need you to hear me that I do not care about the hot water system. All I care is that when I do want a cup of tea, there's hot water. And uh, and someone in the meeting said to me, well, I have to say that's a bit insulting because, you know, that I think it's something you should care about. And I, I got a bit I got a bit cranky, actually. I said, look, you know, this week, let me just run you through the people who've died, the people who are who are in need, the people who uh, are struggling with, with problems, the people who've come to me, the, the, all the things I'm juggling. Is the hot water system really something I need to think about? And, and that is the the inevitable sort of conversation where you balance the extent to which I really want to invest in what sort of coffee cups we have uh, versus the real needs of uh, of the the local community and of the wider world. And I don't know if I do it perfectly, but it's uh, it you know I've been in the game more than a decade now, and you, you start to learn how to kind of triage what the real issues are. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you already said that your training really didn't prepare you adequately for running the, the small business side of things. Mm. But what is the training? A university degree? Yeah. So for Anglicans, there's a, a basic undergraduate degree. Uh, it's like the equivalent of a BA, but in theology. Um, and then there's a parallel training program, like a practical training program, uh, which is over and above the degree. So you do a you do field placement and then do classes about the practicalities, like how to lead church services, how to do pastoral care. You also do a thing called clinical pastoral education, which is a, um, a field placement in usually in a hospital, sometimes a prison or other environment, um, which is quite a rigorous training in uh, responding pastorally to people. And that's about a 400-hour program. Uh, and then once uh, you've done usually that three-year quite intensive training, then you do an additional placement, what we call a curacy. So you do one or two or three years placed in a parish under someone senior who ostensibly is training you and you're learning on the job. So it's probably about a five-year process by the time you're kind of, in theory, ready to manage your own parish. Mm. So you did your training in the Diocese of Newcastle. Yeah, uh, because I grew up in Sydney and Sydney has a quite a distinctive Anglican culture that very conservative and um, I, I was not ever interested in, in that. So it was suggested that I go north to Newcastle. And uh, yeah, no, so I studied at Morpeth at St John's College, which is now closed down. And I was 18. So, so I, Sorry, let me just go back because how, how did everybody concerned figure out that your approach was mm. not going to be conservative enough? Oh, the in Sydney itself, there are a minority of non- um, conforming kind of parishes and I was a member of one of them and so my parish priest just said to me knowing me and knowing the style of you know Christianity that, that I was uh, a part of, she said there's no way you're going to more college in Sydney, that's not even on the radar and, and I didn't, it's funny, I didn't even question that, you think I would have gone and checked the place out knowing what I know now, I, I'm quite sure he was right but yeah it was just a kind of no brainer as far as, as far as he and others were concerned and so it was it all happened very suddenly really, I finished school. I was working on a summer job. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm enrolled and, and moving up to a, a little kind of semi-rural location uh, near Newcastle, where we went to chapel four times a day and wore <laughs> black cassocks everywhere. And it was a live-in, very intense community there. How did that feel for an 18-year-old? It was ridiculous. Like when I look back, I think, what was I thinking? Um, I was the youngest person there by more than 10 years. It, was, it wasn't like a conventional university environment. I had literally just finished school, just had my 18th birthday party, you know, and next thing I know, I'm in this kind of, it wasn't necessarily rarefied. There was a fair bit of drinking and carousing and, and laughter, but it was very much, it's only, the only thing that happened there was that priests get trained or people get trained to become priests. So all my friends from school were off doing other things, you know, and they were doing the usual university or, or early work kind of activities. And there I was in these kind of stone buildings, in a, all built in a square cloister kind of arrangement and, and up at 7.30am saying morning prayer every day. It was very strange. I only did a year live in and then it was suggested that I go and do some other work and I got a, a position as a youth worker in a parish in, in the Hunter Valley. But that year living in was uh, was it was wonderful in lots of ways. A re really good spiritual formation and a really strong discipline uh, in the place around reading and study and discourse and prayer. <clears throat> but also, when I look back at it, quite quite a foreign sort of environment. It was yeah. just it's just strange. Yeah. 
I need to ask you about your family because yeah. we haven't contextualised your, you know, vocation, do your religious vocation at all. And I guess we could make assumptions, but mm. those assumptions would be incorrect. People often assume that because I, I went into ministry young that I come from a religious family and I don't. My father was sort of in a, a, a youth fellowship in his teens, but uh, from the age of about 18 or 19 was not involved in a church. My mother had zero church background at all. I think she remembers once an aunt dragging her to a church. That's about it. But from a, a youngish age, from about the age of five, my parents sent me to a group called the Boys Brigade, which is a, a uniformed youth, Christian youth organisation. And uh, in order to get badges, you had to go to Sunday school. And who doesn't want badges, right? And the, my parents loved this idea because they would get me and my brother out of the house for two hours on a Friday night. And then on Sunday morning, the church, the Baptist church would send a bus around to pick up kids for Sunday school. So a bus would come, take their children away on Sunday morning, um, fill them full of the goodness of the Lord. And and then uh, put us back on the bus and bring us home again. So they had another two-hour window on Sunday uh, that was child-free. My parents thought this was the best thing ever. And actually, we moved a few times, but they always managed to find <laughs> a church that would take the children off their hands, which is quite funny. Uh, and I laugh about it now because I'm like, well, sucked in. Now you've got a priest for a son. Yeah, because I wondered about that. You know, was there any concern on their behalf? Well, obviously not, that you might be sufficiently indoctrinated that you might become a priest. Yeah, I think it wasn't that that they were ever negative towards religion and faith. It was just clear. I remember them saying, look, oh, we have our own beliefs and we're happy for you to explore and have your own beliefs, but we're not going to force anything onto you. Uh, I think for them, and this happens a lot for parents, you see it now with parents who send their kids to church schools, they wanted a, a sort of values basis. They wanted us to uh, kind of know the conventional stories and the history of religion, even if they themselves were not particularly religious in practice. And um, I think began to be a bit taken aback. Um, certainly in my teens, I was involved in two churches simultaneously, a Baptist church and an Anglican church. And, and that was sort of taking up a lot of time. And I was clearly, I was in leadership roles. And But then they kind of rationalized, I think, by, by going, well, he's not on drugs. And uh, he's not sort of out drinking till all hours. And, you know, neither my brother or I were ever interested in sport nor my parents. And so they were kind of like, well, it could be worse. We could have to get up early on Saturday mornings and play footy or something. So, again, it was a, a, quite a pragmatic kind of thing on their part where they went, well, at the end of the day, this is quite a happy kind of uh, arrangement that we've got here. So what about the actor side of you then? Is there there more of a direct link to, to the parentals there? Neither parent is, is an artist of any kind, um, unless you count building train sets. My dad was a bit into that. The next generation up, there are a number of artistic people, including a, a great aunt and uncle who are opera singers. Um, and uh, and also, yeah, so, so as, the, as the family tree spreads out a bit, you start to see a bit more artistic background. But again, it, it was a it sort of came about through happenstance that I got involved in, in first in music and then in, in, uh, in acting. Uh, and uh, even now that I do stand-up comedy as well, I, I, I don't tell my parents about that. I think they found out 
because I was on TV one time. But <laughs> most people could find out. Yeah, but th- we don't ever talk about it. Even like, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you, if I'm casting a play that that's safe, we talk about that. But other things, I'm just like, I just I'm not ready to have this conversation with you. Right so, now. in what ways do you think you are like your parents? Um, I think uh, my mother's quite an intelligent person, and obviously I'm extremely intelligent um, uh, and and quite incisive. Um, and and I I think that's that's a characteristic that I've got from her, the ability to assess a situation quite quickly and, and make rapid decisions. My father is a kind of everyman. He, he gets on with everyone. He's everyone's mate. Um, he's the kind of person that everyone sort of relies on and looks to. And I feel like those two characteristics play out in me. Although the, the difference is my dad is everyone's mate. I tend to make powerful enemies. That's <laughs> So I have lots of friends and a few powerful enemies. And I think the difference too with, between me and my mum, while she is very incisive, she can be quite aggressive. Uh, and I think I'm a bit less ag- aggressive than her or I've learned to be. And yeah, and, and I think I credit my parents very much with a strong value base. I mean, values like honesty and integrity, very important to them. And and I remember lots of conversations in the family about doing what's right, regardless of the circumstances. And uh, I mean, I think of workplace situations, particularly that my dad was in, where he was willing to say, resign from a job or speak up for something rather than put up with something that was wrong. Uh, And I think I've inherited a lot of that, that kind of perspective from, from both my parents. Do they provide you with much comic material? <laughs> um, they certainly cause me to laugh a lot. Um, I don't do much public comic material about my family, but sometimes after I've had a few beers, the, the anecdotes come out because they are, <laughs> <laughs> like most families, my family's a little bit strange. Uh, and my brother is is quite bonkers uh, and uh, he's, he's a nurse and he's the kind of person, if you met him, nurse would be a long way down the list of the job you would think you would have. Um, He's a paediatric nurse. And so you look and you go, really? How does that work? You care for sick children. Oh, okay. You're not actually like a serial killer. Like that that would be (laughs) perhaps the assumption you would make about him. Uh, And uh, anyway, he's married with four kids and his four kids are so adorable uh, and I love them very much. And and, But they're a constant source of amusement. It's just hysterical. I want to go back to what you said about the... your dad being a person who was prepared to stand up for Mm. what was right because you ruffled some feathers and talked back to power pretty early in your career as well. Tell me what happened there. Yeah, I I was uh, ended up being ordained for the Diocese of Bathurst what sort of happens is it's like a meat market and you you, you, you spread yourself around and say, who wants me? And Bathurst said, oh, we'll have you. Um, a situ- I was a school chaplain. That was um, my second placement in Dubbo. And uh, what emerged, there was a very unpleasant situation where the school principal um, was effectively stood down in a, situa- in a situation that I thought was very unreasonable. And later, many years later, what became clear, it was all about a great financial mismanagement that's now public and everybody now knows. But at the time, it just looked like sort of bullying or people behaving very badly and nobody knew that there was this undergirding sort of issue that was driving people to behave in in particular ways. And um, I rather foolishly, in some ways, I saw some bad behaviour and I lodged a formal complaint with a national body that deals with those kinds of things. And as a result, I had my my position uh, yanked within a few days. I was called to a meeting and uh, and handed a piece of paper revoking my licence uh, from the role I was doing and as a priest in the diocese. And, uh, and that was pretty traumatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by then I was 27 and involved in what I thought was my kind of life's vocation 
and had been doing it for four years. And to have that kind of yanked quite suddenly in what I felt were very unreasonable circumstances. What was the justification? And uh, there was no requirement to provide any. I was simply provide uh, the, the piece of paper said notice is hereby given that your license is revoked. All they had to do was give two months notice. All right. So you knew why. I yeah, or I thought I knew why, but yeah, no no reason was ever given. Which uh, let me tell you, when you go to Centrelink and you, and they say, oh, so what work were you doing? And you say priest, and they say, <laughs> and they say, oh, so why were you terminated? And you say, oh, well, here's the piece of paper. No reason has been given. And they say, oh, no, no, you have to have a reason. And I say, well. Actually, no, there's none been given. That's a pretty weird conversation. And then what sorts you. of jobs do you think you'd be good at, Chris? Oh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, as it turned out, another position came up quite quickly. Um, so a short-term position, and then I came to WA for a longer appointment. So things kind of worked out well, but there was a period of, of a couple of months where it was like the world had just come crashing down. So where you thought that you may not be able to continue as a priest Yeah, forever. because it, it was, it's a bit like being black banned, you know, it... It took a lot of work to convince, when I came to Perth, it took a lot of work to convince the Archbishop that I hadn't been stood down for a reason. And trying to say, well, I think it's because I lodged a complaint, but uh, there's nothing to say that I was or wasn't, because it looked very suspicious. So, yeah, that, that took a little bit of work. And these days, that's I mean, that's ancient history in a sense now, but it was certainly my first foray into standing up to, to power and and. Yeah, and I, I sort of paid a price for that. And when you came to Western Australia then, is that when you went to the Darlington Parish? No, initially I was a school chaplain at a school in Mirabuka and uh, and that the, the students and staff there were amazing. Uh, and I worked briefly for the Council of Churches in Western Australia. It's a, like a peak body. Uh, and, that's, and then after that, I went to Darlington Bellevue. So I'm confused about the fact that you're a member of the Society of Catholic Priests. <laughs> yes. I, um, I, tried, I had to look that... F- Oh, further. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? So within the Church of England and therefore around the, the worldwide Anglican Church, there are a lot of societies and groups and little clubs you can belong to. And strangely in Australia, um, the club, if you like, that best aligns with my um, perspective is called the Society of Catholic Priests, even though it's a society of Anglican priests. But within Anglicanism, there are different um, different streams, if you like, and there are those who ident- would identify more with the Protestant end of things and those who, like me, would identify more with the Catholic things. And we're so, still talking capital C Catholic, not, not small C Catholic. No, we're talking small C Catholic. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. even though the title. Of Meaning the kind of universal. That's or- right, yeah. And and I think in practice that means that there's a, a strong um, commitment to the sacraments, a strong commitment to inclusion. Uh, and the Society of Catholic Priests, for instance, is um, very committed to the ordination of women, committed to full inclusion for the LGBTI community, uh, and also committed to kind of preserving, not in a museum kind of way, but preserving the kind of classical expression of Christianity, which involves liturgy and sacraments, while also sort of interpreting that appropriately for the modern era. I can see how that suits you perfectly, because part of your other interests is your social activism around marriage equality, mm-hmm. and particularly around proper treatment of asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me more about your involvement with that. In both of those areas, I feel like I fell into accidental activism. Uh, around marriage equality, look, I'd been to a few rallies and I'd been a signatory to a few statements, but it wasn't until through a weird set of circumstances, I ended up moving a motion at the Synod of the Diocese of Perth, which is like our parliament that meets every year. 
And uh, we, we move motions about various topics. And uh, the, the primate, who's the senior bishop of the Anglican Church of Australia, had said, many Anglicans support civil unions. And he said this statement. In, it was a public statement. And a lot of us went, really? Do we? Oh, that's interesting that he said that. And then we thought, well, let's put it to the test. Let's actually put it to a vote to get some kind of empirical evidence of that. And that was the primary motivation to say, well, if the primate has said that many Anglicans support civil unions, then clearly this is something we should test. So we drafted this motion that that said that we recognise that legal recognition of same-sex relationships can exist, uh, coexist with legal recognition of marriage between a man and a woman, and uh, all hell broke loose. Um, I, I wasn't anticipating really the level of uh, kind of interest within the broader church, and then there was media interest, and uh, and I found myself then doing some national TV and a lot of local TV. And in a sense, the motion could have come up and been voted on and gone into oblivion. But then, because the Archbishop, who has a power of veto, decided to use his veto, it actually inflated the whole issue. So instead of it going away quietly, it then became even bigger. So then the the rules require the motion to come back next year. It has a high threshold to pass. And so the whole rigmarole then happened again, more national media, uh, more op-eds, more conversation. And, And throughout all of that, I found myself responsible to media inquiries on the basis that I see it primarily as um, what we would call evangelism, as being able to speak good news to the wider world. And I thought there's been so much negativity about LGBTI people from the church. It doesn't hurt to have the church saying something positive and affirming. Uh, So I responded to all those media inquiries, but then that caused other people to respond. And so, you know, it became this kind of... um, and yeah. what about in the background? Were there censorious voices kind of contacting you privately saying, Chris, this uh, is not acceptable? The the official church leadership, um, there was no strong no strong reaction to my face anyway. Um, but the, gosh, there was hate mail, so much mail and phone calls. And in fact, people dropped in. I'd be sitting at my desk and some stranger would drop in to say, well, I saw this thing in the newspaper or whatever. Some of it quite aggressive and uh, and a bit threatening and some of it very, very offensive in that it referencing things far beyond the issue. And there were also, you know, because of social media, people found my you know presence on social media and then use that to make really vicious accusations. I thought, gosh, I'd, I'd, like if I'd done something wrong, I wouldn't mind you naming it publicly. But you know, all I did was move a motion at a at a church meeting, um, and then people coming along and then accusing me of. I mean, I ended up having to delete things. I was so just so disgusting. But it, it also, um, I think it it did strengthen me a lot because it it helped me to appreciate my own capacity um, to engage with media. And I think on the whole, I, I was pretty good at giving good answers, solid answers without, you know, going too far and without getting distracted or being caught in traps. And it also helped me to realise that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, you get these vicious things. Some things came in the post with pornography in a in a letter for some reason, but I don't, I don't understand. And you go, oh, well, that's very sad. You actually, I, I felt my, found myself moved to, to pity for the person who was doing that rather than anger or being hurt myself. And so that was that was kind of good 
personal development. To but were you I supported through that in any way? But were there was there a support network for you? I mean, my parishioners are amazing, and they just they just didn't without a lot of fanfare. You know, they just rallied around and made it clear that I was supported. And you know, when the TV cameras came on Sunday morning, they just kind of laughed and enjoyed it and uh, and had a joke uh, about that. And my colleagues were uniformly supportive. I mean, uh, you know, so many people expressing support. But I mean, I knew the support was there because we won the vote twice with an increased majority each time, which on a contentious topic doesn't happen very often. And when unpleasant things would happen, there'd always be someone on the end of the phone. So I never felt unsupported. And even even with the Archbishop, you know, in a sense, the story, the narrative was that he and I were in conflict with one another, but I tried to make it clear to him, and he certainly made it clear to me, that that's not how either of us saw it. It was the, the issue that was being debated, but there was no need for us to have a personal animosity or conflict yeah. with one another. And I guess the other thing that you've had to tolerate very much in the public eye, and I'm interested to know what your experiences have been, is being a public face of the church mm. uh, around the time of this Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child sexual abuse. Mm. What's the experience of you know, being an obvious member of the Anglican church? Yeah. For a while, if you said you were an Anglican rather than a Catholic priest, people would kind of reconsider and they'd say, oh, well, that's not so bad. With the revelations that have come out of the Royal Commission, I think now nearly every clergy person is in a position, regardless of denomination, where they feel the hurt, feel the shame of... Um, things that have been done by their colleagues and even people I've never met, of course, but nevertheless, we share the same role and we um, share the same profile. In practice, I've found myself becoming increasingly careful to the almost to the point of paranoia about being alone with people. You know, I, I take lots of precautionary steps, you know, around visibility, which is good practice in any sector. You know, I think that's a given. But I'm really, really careful. I'm so careful about um, touch and even language with children, you know, to make sure that it's not only that, I mean, I don't want to abuse children, but I also don't want to ever be in a situation where it looks like that might even be a hint of something that someone could misconstrue or whatever. So you're kind of second-guessing yourself. Constantly, almost. constantly. And, and I don't feel that pressure from my congregation. They don't treat me with suspicion, but I do, I think it's just kind of out there in the zeitgeist. I do feel like an obligation to be very, very careful all the time. And Is that because you think that the public view is that all priests are child abusers? I think the public view is that priests, if not sort of watched, if not kept under control, have a proclivity. And in a sense, that's a little bit unfair, but it's also it's also factual. The, the, there was a time when a priest could, could, as we've seen in these case studies, if a priest said, oh, send your son down to the church for a couple of hours to help me, you, you would automatically go, of course, Johnny, go and help father at the church. That's a perfectly normal thing to do. Now, I would never do something like that today, even with the most innocent of, uh, of intentions, because of the, the misconduct of those in the past. Likewise, if I was visiting a home of a single woman, say, who, uh, you know, who was in need of some kind, it's not that long ago that that would be seen as a really laudable thing to do. But these days, I just wouldn't do that because too many people have taken advantage of, of other people. So I think the issue for priests, but also for teachers and scoutmasters and swimming teachers and dance teachers and all kinds of other positions is... Even just men. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. Because of what people have done in the past, we're doubly and triply careful and conscious and people are much more observant and rightly so. You know, we actually train people. I mean, again, this year, it's just in a few weeks, I'm putting, I don't know, 15 or 20 parishioners through the the, tr- the safety training course to be on the lookout for predatory behaviour. And that makes you doubly careful as a leader to go, actually, even obviously, well, I hope obviously I'm not a predator, but I also need to not even engage in anything that might look like the kinds mm-hmm. of things predators do to groom or to, to build trust and But so it on. sounds to me almost like you have to inhabit the character of being the predator to make sure that you're not one. That, which that is, sounds yeah. incredibly exhausting and yeah. and stressful. Yeah. Oh, look, and sometimes people get cranky when you say no to something. For instance, uh, there was a situation where someone said, oh, could you just drop this child home because it's on your way? And I said, well, no, I, I can't do that. And they were like, yeah, but it's on your way. How It's only, you know, it's so easy. To, and I, yes, But no, I'm not going to be alone in a car with a child. It's just not going to happen. And to have to explain that, it's and to say it's not because I'm going to hurt the child, I also don't want to ever be in a position where it might be perceived that there was the potential, you know. Teachers have the same issue. Lots of areas working with children have the same issue. But, yeah, you, you do. And sometimes you see things too and you, you, you take a step back. I mean, there have been instances where I've had to kind of report up, you know, we, we have quite good reporting systems now um, where I've had to say, look, I saw this and it made me feel uncomfortable or I'm a bit concerned about whatever. And, and that's just an inevitable part of the, part of the, the, the work now. Uh, and it's another layer of complexity yeah. um, that in addition to all of the other stuff, you know, you, you're also keeping um, not only behaving safely, but also creating safe environments is part of the role. What do you feel that you've sacrificed then personally to to remain in this role as a priest? Yeah, um, I, I think I think the the stress levels. Without, I don't want to sound like a victim, but actually, the stress level of a priest or any person in ministry is usually kept at a uniformly high level. We get one day per week that's supposed to be the day off. And often that gets interrupted by other things. That's not a healthy way to to function. We work strange hours. So there's early mornings and late nights and and long days and and, uh, you're going away to things. And, you know, it's it's just very, very unpredictable. There's not a lot of structure. And there's also the burden of being the secret keeper. Very often in the community, the priest knows a lot of information that they can't disclose um, or is carrying, you know, there's a conflict or there's a marriage breaking down or there's a sickness that's actually confidential and rightly so. And you carry that around with you both um, just in an emotional sense but also constantly vigilant that you don't disclose a confidence. And then the kind of things that happen, like the the, the classic um, parish priest's prayer is, dear God, please let nothing happen today. <laughs> um, uh, but where you, you literally can go into a day and you just don't know what's going to come across your path. So all of those things combined do, do create an ongoing stress situation. Uh, and last year I had a sabbatical, for which I'm extremely grateful, where I found myself in a position where that wasn't my life. And gosh, it was nice. You know, is to, this when you went to Chicago? Yeah, I was in Chicago and I was in, in Israel and Palestine for a bit and, and trekked around Europe a bit. And uh, and it was just nice to kind of have not 
any kind of worries. Like it's just stuff just kind of happened. And in terms of creativity and also doing uh, spontaneous things like, you know, to, to just go out and stay out really late or sleep in or just be a kind of normal person. Uh, that was pretty nice. And I don't, I don't resent the priesthood because it's opened up so much for me and of self-discovery and, and and it is a very real sense of call but there's there's sometimes where you're like gee it'd be nice just to have a weekend yeah yeah like, uh, I, I want to bring the conversation full circle because one of the the great things that you've done with the the material of of the church mm. but in the context of your acting is pirate church which mm-hmm. you mentioned right at the beginning and well tell tell me a little bit about it first okay pirate church is a loving satire of uh, religion and it arose out of a partnership between me and and Wurzel who is himself a person of faith and now actually training for ministry in the uniting church and uh, it comes from an episode of the goodies and at the end of uh, one of the episodes they'd set up a pirate radio station and at the end, I forget which character, but one character says to the other, um, what next? After we've done this pirate radio station, he thinks for a moment, he says, how about a pirate Church of England? Um, <clears throat> and out of that sort of impetus from the goodies episode, Wurzel initiated with me a conversation about what would it be like to set up a pirate church? Initially, there was no Arami Hartis and, and Rum sort of idea. We were very much thinking about underground, that sense of pirate underground. Uh, and then the like pirated software and that kind of thing, an alternative. And so the the initially we were thinking about stand-up, a lot of stand-up and a lot of um, improv and kind of audience participation. And, and as the idea, we suddenly realised that there's got to be pirates involved. There's going to have to be uh, real pirates. So the pirate church that exists now that's, you know, toured to Melbourne Comedy Festival and, and you know, won awards and it, we're pretty proud of it, is is a two-half show. The first half is sketch comedy and uh, and some songs and, and, and other kind of good sort of written material, uh, which basically lampoons religion and nobody is safe. I mean, we've really gone after everyone, including our own kind of trendy liberal progressive brand of Christianity um, who are uh, come in for a lot of- Right for it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and I think it's important to be able to mock the, the tribe that you're from. Then we segue into a church service aboard a pirate ship, um, which kind of operates in an alternative reality and which has actually been its own form of uh, like a brilliant journey for us because we wanted to do to do it with integrity and not to mock religion, but actually to enliven uh, the kind of uh, liturgy um, that people are used to, but by putting it into a different context. And so, you know, writing sea shanties and writing the kind of liturgy around the sharing of rum. As in um, sea shanties to the to the tunes of hymns? Yeah, we've done some to hymn tunes and some sort of to more conventional pirate tunes. <laughs> um, and uh, and the congregation, we can always call them the congregation, the audience who, are, who pay money to come in. Um, you know, they love the singing and they love the rum and we have a reading from the ship's log and we have a sermon. Um, (laughs) And people who are of faith say that they, they just love that 
because they recognise it, but by recontextualising it, it's funny and it's also, uh, it sort of is empowering uh, and they they discover new truths about their own faith experience. And people who are not of a faith background, who is probably the bulk of our audience, say, it's like no church I've ever been to and it's kind of, and they say things like, if it was, if it was, church was like this all the time, I'd always Definitely go. Definitely go. And like, well, you probably wouldn't actually, but it still does involve getting out of bed early on a Sunday morning. So that's... That's an inhibiting factor. But you guys must spend ages talking about how you can make the actual doctrine of the church match up exactly. to the pirate church? Oh, look, we had to come up with a doctrine of the Trinity in the pirate realm, oh. which is, is the deep, the captain and the ghostly parrot. And we, and we take we take our doctrine so so seriously. And we also, um, there are now in existence about 15 log readings and we're so fastidious about ensuring that they all are common, like they all have a common uh, canon, uh, that they don't contradict one another, which is, is so, <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a lot of energy goes into making sure that what we do, um, we, we talk about the pirate realm where we kind of go to, is it's a bit like Narnia. So it's recognisable, but it's not actually part of our world. And and as Narnia had Aslan and the Emperor over the sea, so uh, too in, in this pirate realm, we have all these kind of players that are allegories. Uh, so the the Armada, who are the enemy, uh, who are always trying to, trying to knock us down, is kind of indicative of the forces of evil in the world. And we we do a lot of work to kind of humanise the the evil as well. Like we, honestly, I think we spend uh, more time coming up with with uh, pirate theology than we probably do in real theology. But it, it's been a really life giving experience um, for both of us to, because neither of us is the kind of people who wants to sidle up to someone in the street and ask them if they've heard the good news about Jesus. I mean, of all the things I want to do with my life, that's that's like rock bottom. But we are also people who do think Christianity has something to say and has a significant influence, a transformative influence on lives and on the world. And through Pirate Church, we've actually found a way to kind of evangelize, to, to say good news, while also people are laughing and while also we're, we're really taking the piss out of religion, which is inherently hysterical. Every Sunday, I sort of pause for a moment and look around and I think, Look at all these strange people, and me, I include myself in that, and look, and we work with this fancy dress, and we're singing very strange music, and all the little rituals and, and, uh, and mores and practices that we have, and it's all very strange. And why shouldn't we laugh at that? In fact, if we can't laugh at it, there's something wrong. Will you always be a priest? Uh, well, we, we say once a priest, always a priest, um, and I... I don't have any plans to uh, to put that to one side. I, I could see a point in my life where I'll take a hiatus and that would be to do with, with stress and burnout more than anything else. And there are also a surprising number of things you can do that aren't parish work but are still ministry. And I could see that happening down the track. But actually right now I'm really committed to the parish I'm in and staying there for the long haul. I think that we say uh, another little saying in the industry right now is staying is the new going. Actually sticking with a community and all of its foibles and stresses and conflicts is very important. And, uh, and I really love where I am and uh, I think they love me. And to be able to commit to something for a long period is quite countercultural. So that's a roundabout way of saying yes, probably, but who the hell knows? <laughs> well, whatever happens next, I don't think anyone could question your love for people, your commitment to really grabbing life by the horns and shaking it. Chris, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks, Meredith. It's, it's really been great. 
Rare Air is produced by Mary Fayton for Three Gates Media and mixed by Adrian Sardi at The Vault. You can find the full series on iTunes by searching Rare Air with Mary Fayton. Get in touch at threegatesmedia.com or on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening.